1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Donnelly Carney about her study of the Macedonian queen, Eurydice, entitled Eurydice and the Birth of Macedonian Power. Beth, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, um, I have lived in South Carolina for a long time because I taught for many years, like well over 40 at Clemson University. So I've lived in the small town of Clemson most of my adult life. I'm from uh, the Northeast, from, um, well, North Jersey, Western Pennsylvania, New York State. But um I've been here a while. I may or may not stay. I am teaching again, though I am retired. I am teaching this semester. I was the first woman they hired on tenure track in the history department, Um, So, and that was in the 1970s. Uh, That was an an easy period in my life. Uh, I have a degree in classical studies, which means you do Greco-Roman literature, history, art. Material remains, lots of different things, um, but I ended up in a history department, so I have only occasionally had a chance to teach language. And um, I started out working on Alexander the Great and sort of moved into ancient Macedonia in general and discovered that nobody had done much with women, which was pretty much everybody was discovering that in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I got very interested in not just the role of women in monarchy, but to some degree how monarchy worked and why it's a form of government that lasted as long as it did. So I'm usually working in the fourth century BCE, but I sometimes go a fair amount further than that. I've worked a little in Ptolemaic Egypt, and lately I've developed some interest in more recent events but that's that's generally where i hang out although frankly when you've been teaching as long as i have you can natter on about pretty much anything given a chance and i've taught modern civilization <laughs> surveys and had people take notes on my views on the causes of world war one which is really shameless on my part but i did it so <laughs> yeah so i feel that's, the same way when basically... i talk about the decline fall
1: of, of the roman republic <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, exactly. We've all done it, and I didn't expend to uh, expect to stay in this town. I am an urban person. My daughter lives and works in Manhattan, and that was sort of my plan originally, but not how things turned out. So, yeah, I really like teaching. I like scholarship. I'm still doing both.
1: It's fascinating to hear you describe these uh, two themes in your uh, in your research because they come together very nicely in the book that you've written about Eurydice. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit as to why it was you decided to write a book about her and some of the challenges that you faced in doing so well
0: um I decided to do it partly because i had been postponing doing much about her for like a good 20 years. Um, I published a book uh, called Women in Monarchy in Ancient Macedonia, I think that's the title, in 2000, and it was analysis, but it also had um, short lives of the women, so she was there. And I co-directed a dissertation in Australia with somebody who who wrote on both Eurydice and uh, Eurydice's daughter-in-law, Olympia's mother of Alexander the Great. Uh, but the evidence is really kind of funky. And uh, so I didn't go further, but particularly my interest in the material remains in ancient Macedonia in general. And those that might, could be, are connected to Eurydice increased. And so I decided to go ahead knowing that um, it was hardly like writing a biography. Um, But I thought it would be interesting to do, and I'd sold somebody on letting me do it. So I did.
1: I I was wondering if you could... uh start us off by talking a little bit about Eurydice herself basically what do we know about her and 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 what is it about her that makes her uh worthy of study in terms of her historical impact her role in in history of 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 the ancient world of, of macedonia in particular
0: okay so she was probably born um around the end of the fifth the beginning of the fourth century bc and she lived till so 400, say, and she lived to probably the 340s. Uh, she, we know that her father's name, exactly who he was ethnically is not entirely clear, but somebody elite somewhere in the Greek peninsula. And um, early in the 4th century, probably in the 390s, She married the king of Macedonia, a man like it seemed like half the male population of Macedonia, named Amentis. And she had three sons and a daughter with Amentis. He had at least one other wife. Uh, Later Macedonian kings were polygamists, so he probably was too. Uh, And... um, more than that we don't during her husband's lifetime we don't know much about her he dies uh, and one son is just barely her oldest old enough to be king and he kind of screws it up um and is killed and her second son after considerable running around in events becomes king and after a longer period of time is killed in battle, uh, a tremendous defeat. Eurydice is still alive. And her youngest son, Philip II, father of Alexander, takes over and Macedonia becomes a great power invasion of the Persian Empire, though it is his son who carries it out. So Eurydice's role in all of this um, is that at a critical moment she pretty much saves the throne for her two younger sons. But at the same time, um, she is accused by one source of trying to kill her husband and then in turn all three of her sons. Uh, That mostly probably isn't true, but some people believe it. But she's also just generally believed to be working against her sons at times and to be less than faithful. So there's a version of events in which she saves her sons in the throne. And there's another version of events in which she is a bad, bad woman who, um, you know, kills every, tries to kill every male closely related to her. Oh, and has an affair with her son in law. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, that, that's one so, of the I, I found fascinating about your book. I, I, I apologize for but it, but I found it fascinating because it's it, we, you know you're, you're talking about how it, you, what you've conveyed is the sense of just how limited the amount of information that we have about her, mm-hmm. and, and and so what you have in your book is not just a uh, it, it's it's a very layered book because you have what we know about Eurydice, but you also have the study of. Of, of image formation, the study of his, the, how historical reputations are formed, the, a, a, a sense an a, a effort to uh, deconstruct why it is that maybe these uh, sometimes, conf- as you pointed out, conflicting stories exist about her. And it really is fascinating to consider about, you know, it, it, what it says about the role of women in uh, the fourth century BCE in Macedonia during that time and, and you know, in, in the sense of how so much of it is, as you point out later in the book, is driven by the agendas of these writers who oftentimes had very you know, preconceived notions about uh, historical figures and, and, and the place of women.
0: They do, and on top of that, um, most of them live many centuries after these events. So. Uh and, and uh, uh often in Roman times. So um those political and cultural expectations have a lot to do with the stories they tell and just you know their distance from from events. So one reason why I prefer the I guess I'll say good Eurydice take, uh is that is that she tries to save the throne for her remaining sons, is that uh, that is a description um, made by an Athenian in a speech, at least originally while she was still alive, um, but recounting things he'd actually said to Philip himself. So it is, relatively speaking, contemporary evidence as opposed to all the later stuff. Um, And oh, the other thing I didn't talk about when you asked me why I wanted to do something in Eurydice is um, it has to do with material evidence. Um, When I started working uh, on Macedonian history, everything was still very literary and and there weren't inscriptions, documents written on stone much from the period and those that weren't super helpful in a lot of ways. Um, But in 1977 and 1978, uh, outside of the modern city of Thessaloniki in a village called Virgina, at first two and then three tombs that are widely considered to be royal were found, and then many, many more. One of them is often said to belong to the Urezi's son Philip II, failing that, it's probably his his um, son, Alexander's half-brother, um, and female burials as well, and uh, fabulous objects, uh, some remarkable paintings, and all that material evidence, not that none had been found beforehand, um, but it, between what was found and then that it led to A tremendous increase in archaeological effort uh, in Macedonia, uh, really gave you another window on uh, these events, even though, you know, the material evidence is in different ways as problematic, although prettier, maybe more interesting (laughs) than the literary.
1: I was wondering if you could uh, maybe uh, take us back a bit to uh, Eurydice and her marriage to uh, Amentis, and if you could elaborate a bit as to what her role might have been and i understand that you know this year involves maybe taking a look at women more generally during the period and royal women in particular Mm -hmm. but what do we what can we infer or conclude about what she her role might have been or what she might have done
0: well well her husband was still alive and her sons would have been pretty young um The role that she played later is probably in a less dramatic way the role she played then, and that is as an advocate for her son's succession, because there are other sons, not to mention, basically in Macedonia, if you were a member of what appears to have been a fairly extensive royal family, you could always try to claim the throne, and if you won, you were king, you know, I mean... It wasn't a closed shop, really. Uh, So there were potentially a lot of people who could threaten uh, her son's future. And she derived importance from how important and successful they turned out to be. So we have no idea whether she was close or not to her husband. How close she would personally have been to those sons is hard to say, but their fates, their futures were tied together. And, um, we do have reason to think that she had allies at court. She had supporters and she had enemies. Uh, and, uh, because Macedonia kind of was a sort of changeable place. She couldn't count on them staying that way. That would have been part of her job as well. And then after her husband died, um, particularly since the one son was barely of age and the others were much younger, uh, that same being an advocate certainly applies, but it it's more dramatic, the threats. And also her reputation affects theirs and the other way around. So I feel fairly strongly that, particularly after things stabilized and her youngest son, Philip II, was on the throne, became very successful and so on, that things connected to her were part of his reputation as well, and they sort of play out in that way, and she becomes part of his projection of his own and the family image in a variety of ways.
1: I like the way you put it about how she draws importance from her, not just her marriage, but especially from her son's. Does she also uh, draw power? Do we have any sense that she was more than just a proud mother watching her sons prosper? Was she playing more of an interventionist role in the way that, say, yes. uh, female monarch, uh, female mothers of monarchs have periodically throughout history?
0: Mm-hmm. So she does in one single traumatic moment, which is kind of the only thing for sure we know she did, but it's pretty traumatic. Um, her eldest son becomes king and uh, kind of overreaches and is assassinated. Uh, And exactly when the event I'm about to describe happens is problematic. It could be various times. Uh, But in any case, it's not clear to me that anyone was king at the time this happens In Macedonia, somebody always turned up to invade when a king died. I mean, not always, but virtually always. Uh, typically another claimant to the throne may be backed by a foreign power. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Because, you know, dead king, any possible heirs, way too young to rule on their own, seems like a good time. So Eurydice, knowing that there was an Athenian admiral in the neighborhood, and that some years before her husband had sort of a diplomatic arrangement, adopted him as a son. So there, there was a family connection. She asked this guy to come and save the throne for a son, and there seems to be some kind of public ceremony exactly where isn't clear. Um, and in some sources, they say she made an alliance, the the Greek term that, that's used, you know, for treaties and stuff, um, with this guy. And um, he did. He drove out the pretender. Uh, But in the narratives about what happened, you hear uh, when things are going badly uh, and the one son is killed that uh, her supporters have deserted them. Eurydice and her sons for others, which makes you realize there's a party and who supports and who doesn't comes and goes. Uh, but um, she knew the diplomatic situation well enough to find the right person to help. And, of course, it was good for him in a variety of ways. Um, And that enabled her sons to survive, not get killed. Um, The guy who most likely would have liked to be king, not the invader, but another, to whom she may or may not have been married. (laughs) There's no telling. Uh, In any case, uh, he was stuck with being regent, (laughs) uh, kind of slapped on the wrist by another powerful state, more powerful than Macedonia was at that moment. So it was this critical time. um, And uh, yet there are these stories about her having an affair. Does she marry this guy? since this guy killed her first son, well, that's bad. Marrying your son's murder, not good for your image. And so a lot of the stuff afterwards almost certainly has to do with how many different stories, how problematic her reputation was. And, uh, she and her sons appeared to do some damage control. Uh, how true any of this is, is very hard to tell because courts, at pretty much any period in time, tend to generate stories like this gossip, and uh, a lot of things happen behind the scenes. So, and I'm your some of your listeners might be thinking of this point of Hamlet, because <laughs> uh, there are some similarities there.
1: That's one of the things you do in your book that that I like when you're talking about the the questions surrounding Eurydice's career is you 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 tie it to you you point out the similarities between uh, other famous uh, you know stories about women. You, I, I like the one you when you brought in uh, James Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice. And it, 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 to me, as I was reading, mm-hmm. I was thinking about how the, how so many of these stories you know can be classified into these tropes about. Women in these various roles, and and I like how you made the point. You didn't, you know, base the book around it, but it was a point that kind of gets to how how so much of this is about interpretation of that plays into these broader roles that women are seen as playing by the men who are who are recording recounting these stories.
0: Yes, and it took a long time for people to get to that point of realization. So. When I was first working Macedonian history, um, and to some degree this still happens, but nowhere near so much in really the ancient world in general, uh, there was just a presumption that women had nothing to do with politics. And one reason the presumption exists is that people thought about the manipulation of power is connected to office and women didn't hold offices. Uh, and they didn't really think much about whether, in fact, the king was understood his job as an office. Uh, I would tend to say not. But in any case, uh, in a way, they got to find out of how people understood the manipulation of power. And the moment you start looking at families, no matter how a given culture or class constructs a family, it's it it's a different issue. And you realize that, you can't make these hard lines. And I think in general, in the history of many monarchies, women are, uh, royal women are um, the backup. They are uh, the relief troops. Uh, most obviously, if a spouse dies and uh, they their children are not old enough to rule, but to some degree... They're always true um, whether your mother likes you or not. Really. It's in her self-interest to be your advocate
1: mm-hmm. I, I was wondering if you could maybe delve a bit more into some of these questions surrounding Eurydice's career some of the uh, Stories that people have offered about you, you Identify four of them and one of them you've already addressed Which is the, the degree to which she received this assistance from this Athenian admiral? Uh, you, you start uh, when you're examining this in, in, in that chapter by looking at this question about her as an adulteress, and this, of course, is, mm-hmm. is something that, that is very interesting because it it's one of those things that ties into not just the fact that this is when uh, uh, Amentis is alive, but also this you know the notion that it applies from it that she's you know in effect you know maybe not as so worthy. What, what, what's going on there, and and, and 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 what you know do you sort of unpack about that that particular uh, question about her life?
0: Well, I think um, one of the things that colors the stories about her, but other powerful women as well because have worked on some others, is this kind of, I'm trying to think of the right word to use here, unrealistic, romanticized version of marriage, not just for royal people, but in general, that had nothing to do with reality in the ancient world. I mean, even if you were poor, almost certainly your parents arranged the marriage. Uh, They weren't love matches, and that was certainly not true um, for anybody powerful, because property and the inheritance of power was involved. But at the same time, you get stories about kings marrying for love. And um, certainly because if a woman was unfaithful, well, whose baby was it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, When there's anything to inherit is a big deal. Uh, And we just don't know. I don't see that there's any way to tell whether you have um, political enemies, for instance, supporters of the other three sons of Phil of by the other wife. Not to mention other people uh, who want to see her and her sons out of the way. And uh, a woman's public reputation, particularly her sexual reputation, um, still, you know, what's going to happen if any female candidate for president, uh, there's any story about her sexual lack of faith or maybe just having affairs? Um, I. Don't think it'll be the same as it is for men still, but back then certainly not. And there was this practical issue of parentage. Uh, the only way you could be sure about whether somebody was actually the son or the daughter of so and so was uh, because you were confident that the wife had been faithful. So it goes. It's it's such kind of gossip that it's hard to prove or disprove, but the gossip is certainly there. The one thing that I think is kind of interesting about both the sympathetic accounts of Eurydice and the non-sympathetic ones where, you know, she tries to kill everybody, really. (laughs) Oh, and she doesn't, she doesn't, one of these supposed attempts happens after she has a grandson and, you know, it's just really bad in a grandmother. So, but I think that So many of them assume that she is the leader of a faction. So both the she's an evil woman account and this very favorable one have her with a following. And so probably just apart from the struggle for the throne, I think she must have been something of um, a power. Uh, And that's why she's controversial, because she has enemies.
1: You, one of the things you, you've alluded to here is the fact that a lot of the ish questions about her being an adulteress tied to in effect her uh, failure to live up to her responsibilities as a, a woman, as a royal woman, as a, as a royal wife, and then you have these stories as well, which which you know expand upon that when you talk when you bring in these questions as to whether or not she murdered her two sons when they were kings, and as which which really is you, you think it was, it's bad? you know the the reputation must be bad enough to you know have these charges of adultery but now you have these accusations of her mm-hmm. killing her own sons assuming of course that you know you know that they were her yeah. sons by by uh Amentus and and not say you know further proof of the fact that she was an adulteress
0: yeah well it, it these stories kind of go in circles so for instance if she's unfaithful with this guy she supposedly wants to put on the th- throne and the implication is that her three sons are not in fact Amenta's sons, then exactly why she'd want to kill her lover's sons is not
1: so clear. <laughs> A-
0: anyway, uh in general, people don't take most of the stories about murder seriously because, for instance, um Her second oldest son, uh, it's impossible really to deny that he died in this disastrous battle. Uh, But the first son's death, if she was already married to this guy, something she may well have had no choice about if she was married to him, um, because things were really dicey, uh, that that is the only one where you can certainly think she's married this guy. He kills her son or he's already killed her son. you can see where that would go. Mm-hmm.
1: So um, I was wondering if we could perhaps maybe shift our focus away from talking about who she was and, and, and talk a bit about this related subject of her image, because you talk mm-hmm. a lot, because here's where something where we have a, uh, Artifacts or, uh, or or artifacts that we think are attributed to her, and, and they offer a, a way of interpreting her that is separate from these stories told centuries after the fact that you know probably say more about the writers than they do about Eurydice herself. So, what were some of the what was her image in her lifetime that, to the best that we can reconstruct it?
0: Well, the thing that appears to be the earliest. Is um, not a physical inscription, that is, some kind of document either carved into stone or um, in metal or something else lasting. Um, it's a description of an inscription by um, a writer from the second century CE. So long after the event, but he is apparently describing an inscription he's seen and there's some problems with the manuscript, so how the inscription reads. But it is something in poetry that she recorded celebrating the fact that she had learned to read long after she was an adult, when she had sons who were, the phrase makes you think they're at least adolescent. Um, And it's either It involves the muses who are patrons, um, among other things, well, of the arts in general, but um, also of reading. And it involves citizen women. And thanks to the text being a little mixed up, it's a little hard to tell if the dedication is to the muses. Or actually, this is something um, written to fellow citizen women, um, in effect, holding herself up as a model. So she's an ideal mother, and that's really why this ancient author um gives us the inscription because he's saying she's a model. Um, and it's um the tone of this is interesting. She's proud of herself, but it is certainly the mirror image of the you know untrustworthy and possibly murderous mother. And um, it's fairly early. It's probably well, the way it reads, it's before at least all of her sons had become adults. And it's her. I mean, she may have paid somebody to write the the poem, but but she's the one doing the dedicating. And it's certainly not the the con- contriving witchy Ulysses that you get somewhere else. And then, later, and this is all found since the 1980s, um, in the village Vergina, that we believe is the older Macedonian capital, um, a sanctuary with a bunch of different buildings. It's a very complicated site. uh, And things were added and subtracted over the centuries and so on. Um, In the some of it within buildings, some of it just outside the buildings, um, were found two statue bases with her name and that of her father, Sirisi, daughter of Theris To Eucleia. Now, Eucleia is not <laughs> the Greek deity anyone would know, except a specialist. It means literally good ra- repute. Uh, and um, there was a lot of... Uh, cults of personifications by the 4th century, and the good repute is often military, but by no means always. Uh, It also has to do with reputation, and for women, it can have to do with, um, you know, acting appropriately sexually. Uh, So these two statue bases, um, dedicated by Eurydice to this goddess, is the whole temple sanctuary connected to Eucleo? We don't know. Maybe. Uh, and in one of the burial pits, I can explain in a minute why there'd be a burial pit for objects, um, is a statue in two parts a little bit larger than life-size, of marble, possibly the work of an Athenian sculptor, of a woman in a kind of old-fashioned dress that a goddess might wear or a priestess. Uh, And uh, some people think it's a portrait of Eurydice. Some people think it's the goddess. Uh, But in any case, dedicated by Eurydice. Uh, So again, her personal acts... Her husband isn't mentioned, her sons aren't mentioned. She's doing the dedicating. Um, and let me explain about the pit and why the statue is buried, because I think this goes to her continuing reputation. So the centuries passed, Eurythy was long dead. Uh, the Romans messed with the Macedonians a bunch of times, but in the second century BC, they conquered them and abolished the monarchy, uh, and they did a lot of damage everywhere and, unsurprisingly, uh, in the old capital. So the sanctuary experienced damage at that time, but it continued in some level of use until about a century or two later, sometime in the first century C.E. or A.D., and um, there was, I think, an earthquake. Anyway, it wasn't just human action. So somebody went to the trouble to bury with tremendous care what was left of items in this sanctuary. So that is um, three and a half centuries, maybe, after her death. And so the reason uh, the statue in the two parts and one of the statue bases is in one of these pits the other was actually found in front of the remains of the sanctuary this all goes to the continued reverence for those objects and um, obviously to continued popular respect Uh, so that's pretty good considering you
1: you mentioned that these are uh, you know artifacts that we can assume or, or, or reasonably conclude that they are, you know, were ones in which Eurydice had some influence, and then you uh, shift in a, a little to talk about the artifacts that about her that we can date to her uh, after her death. And this, I thought, was an interesting mm-hmm. distinction to make, be and a perfectly understandable one because you're talking about the ones in which she had a direct say. And then ones that would have been uh, promoted by her son, Philip, or maybe mm-hmm. uh, some of those other people who had that respect for her, which which speaks to uh, how she uh, how they would have wanted her to be remembered or how they would have wanted to remember. Her. What artifacts do we have uh, that fit that category? And what do uh, they reveal? Do they uh, support this? Do they offer us a slightly different picture? What do they have to say?
0: Well, they're less personal because she's she's not doing it. There is a famous building um in um southern greece um at Olympia dedicated by Philip uh towards the end of his life after he'd won the decisive victory against the remaining Greek powers who opposed him uh and it's a small circular building that held five statues himself in the center <laughs> uh and um his son alexander and uh his father and olympius the mother of alexander and the fifth statue is of a woman called eurydice and there are unfortunately more than one person could fit that bill but I think it's his mother, uh, and so basically it's a monument to this Macedonian royal family put up in the biggest sanctuary in the Greek, well, most important sanctuary in the Greek world, um, and um, it includes this woman who, you know, they the bad stories about, even though she was almost certainly dead by that point, um, and kind of, I think, speaks for itself. Maybe more interesting, though, and parts of the building survived, and the statue base has been not the statues themselves, is um, this tomb that has been ascribed to her, and it's a phenomenal tomb. I'm kind of inclined to think it probably isn't hers, but it's just possible it could be, and it's really nifty. It goes to how archaeologists thought about her, that it was attributed to her without, you know, anything like say her name or something, Uh, which unfortunately doesn't seem to be something we've got in general for Macedonian tombs. Should I describe the tomb?
1: Um, Just a little bit, please.
0: Okay. So the Macedonians at some point, this is probably one of the earlier ones, but how much hard to say, built these very large Tombs, typically not always two rooms, uh, with a barrel vault and the front of them, this, this one doesn't, but they usually ha- look like the in front of a Greek temple or a palace. And um, there's a lot of stuff in them. This tomb, um, like most of them, was looted, uh, so you're more struck by what's left, most of the objects having been removed. And the inner room in the tomb has, very well preserved with bright paint, uh, what looks like the front of a temple with a door and windows. So convincing that when the tomb robbers saw it, they tried to break through the door. But it's a door to nowhere, or arguably, it's a door to the afterlife. It's pretty eerie. And, in front of this wall was I think in English we'd want to call it a throne, although exactly what connection the the chairs like this have to do with monarchy is pretty debatable, larger than life size, I think more than two meters across, um, with a step stool, and on it was um, basically a um, uh a box uh a stone box with uh the cremated remains of the dead. they're just dumped out, so if there's going any human remains to be found in that tomb, we don't know about it yet uh, it's the back of the the chair that's so fascinating it is a painted there's you know other kinds of decoration. But it is a painting of the god of the dead, Hades, and his wife, Persephone, the one the story's told about how he kidnaps her and keeps her in the underworld half of the year. But thanks to her mother, the goddess, pleading, she's in the regular world, the other half. And so cults to her mother, Demeter and Persephone, are very connected with ideas about life after death. The two of them, the husband and wife, are staring right at you in this chariot, and there are two, two horses on each side. It's really quite striking, and the focus is a little bit more on Persephone. Um, and it's clear from the little bits that are left, and partly the funeral pyre, the remnants of the funeral pyre on top of the tomb, that this was an important person, was it Eurydice? For various reasons, not worth going into. It's very tight on the chronology that we've got to make that fit, but it's it's just possible. Uh, but um, this back wall with the door into nowhere um, is haunting there's nothing else like it hmm. that's been found. And I think uh, for the famous archaeologist who found the royal tombs and then found this, um, it, he said Eurydice because he thought it was a woman's burial. It remains to be seen if that's correct or not. It may have been a couple for all we know. Um, in any case, he thought it was a woman's burial and he immediately thought of eurydice
1: it, it's kind of uh, frustrating i was thinking it's, it's kind of frustrating the way it feels i feel like you from what you've written in your book that it like we're still just in the process of only beginning to discover her and, and this idea that if it if it isn't her tomb that her tomb might still be out there and, and what it might have yeah. to reveal about her
0: or we found it and we just don't know it's hers
1: mm-hmm. I, I was because
0: um, oh go ahead Well, it's just that uh, if a tomb's been looted, and there's another nearby that has a somewhat similar uh, throne whose decorations haven't been as well preserved, um, that's probably later. But in the absence of much left, it's kind of hard to say. Um, But yeah, uh, it could still be out there. And I, I should say that excavations at Virginia are very definitely ongoing. Uh, Dr. Kirriaku, who, who was so helpful in um, giving me some images for the book, um I sent her a copy, and uh sometime the center summer she wrote back and said she was digging at euclea now um so and you know there there have been any number of surprising discoveries, so definitely more things could happen. I should say this tomb is not open to the public. I've never been inside it. Very, very few people have. Uh, And um, so, you know, you can only go with pictures. And it hasn't been fully published. So, for instance, there may be, uh, at some point in the future, um, analysis. the, The way cremation works, it's possible there are fragments of bone there. Uh, from the tomb, but nobody's published it yet.
1: So much left to discover about (laughs) Gritisi.
0: About her and about everybody else there. So Mm -hmm. there are these mysterious burials uh, that were found in 2008 and 2009 on the edge of the Eucleia complex, which are fascinating. And, uh, you know, that's... We there's a limit to what we know about who they are, but they may be royal, too, and they may be um, uh, children of Alexander's, (laughs) (laughs) who they may be, among other things. So, um, and they're just weird burials. So, no, it's a fascinating site, and uh, there are other places in Macedonia with some really intriguing tombs and remains that um, we'll probably hear more about. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Well, sure. I I, technically, I retired from teaching about a year and a half ago. In practice, I am, in fact, teaching uh, this semester. Um so what I'm up to at the moment, uh I am co editing with um a friend of mine in Germany, Sabina Muller, uh a companion volume. I'll explain what companion volumes are in a second, uh on um women and monarchy in the ancient Mediterranean. So Greek, Egyptian, Roman, Persian Near Eastern of various kinds, um, quite a mix over, I suppose we go from around 3000 BCE to the 4th century CE, Uh, 45 chapters, 45 scholars, many of them not English speakers, (laughs) so that's kind of, um, companion volumes are meant to introduce people to fields, but also to pull together uh, discussion of material in one place uh, and getting things on different monarchies in the role of women in them is not so easy to do. So that's how I got interested in that. And I have a chapter, at least one chapter of my own in there. And, you know, obviously introduction and editing has a lot to do with it. So that is exactly what I'm up to now. I am also um, working uh on just starting to work on um, the role of women in the place Alexander's mother Olympias came from, and what it says about the rise and fall of monarchy in that kingdom, um, which I'll call Molossia, but people might know it as Epirus. So, roughly the area of north, what is today northwestern Greece. Um, And then I have a sort of 19th century project. I'm I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do with it, but it's kind of cool. Uh, I don't know if I'll publish on it or not. It's I have an ancestor. Thessaloniki is the name of the second largest city in Greece, uh, the capital of the Greek province of Macedonia. It was founded in 316 BCE uh, by Cassander, who had just married pretty much by force, um, one of Alexander's half-sisters, whose name was Thessalonisi, and I'm going to keep calling her Thessalonici so we can tell her apart from the city. It's been there that long. Uh, when uh, the Byzantine Empire gradually collapsed and the Ottomans took over, they took over the city and uh, um, for a long time was more often called Salonika or Salonik. Uh, and when Ferdinand and Isabel <clears throat> drove uh, everybody Jewish um, who didn't convert out of Spain, many of those Sephardic Jews landed in Salonica. Uh So the population of the city was um, over 50 percent really probably well over 50% Sephardic Jews who spoke Ladino, kind of archaic, Hebraized Spanish, until uh, the 20th century um, when, for a variety of reasons, it faded away. There weren't very many Greeks. Uh, there were a fair number of people probably you could call Turkish and then other random Greeks. Anyway, uh, an ancestor of mine, I think he's my great great Uncle. Maybe I should add another great there, I'm not sure. <laughs> um <laughs> uh, was part of the second Great Awakening in uh 19th century America. And um one of the things, as with the evangelical Christians today, they were interested in was converting the Jews. And his name is Oliffle, <laughs> Maynard took himself along with his wife as part of a very organized uh, missionary effort to Salonica in 1849. And um, he died there of malaria, not having been there very long, basically because he went off to see Mount Olympus and got stung by mosquitoes. Uh, Anyway, as it happens, I have um, all the letters he sent back, many of which have not been published, and a whole collection of family correspondence around that. He is kind of a foot soldier in the um, arrival of American missionaries in the Middle East with long-term consequences still with us. And um, because there was a great fire in Thessaloniki right at the end of World War One. Many records were destroyed. Uh, Alas, Eliphal is a lot more interested in converting people than he is in describing the city, which was a disappointment to me. Uh, but his adventure going to Mount Olympus and what he does say about people's mindsets uh, is fascinating. Um, there's a lot of work being done on American missionaries in the short and the long term impact of all of this, and people have said a little bit about him, but um, I have letters that I will ultimately give to Amherst College, which kind of changed things, and it was kind of cool. The last time I was in Thessaloniki, I knew he was buried there, but I didn't think there was much chance there was anything still there. A lot of things, many of them unpleasant, have happened in the city. Jewish cemetery, pretty much completely destroyed. Um... Thanks to the internet, I found his grave, and so there I was, the first person in the family to see the thing. The Bible Society had recorded what it supposedly said, but in fact, there was a lot more on it. But it was a strange moment. I mean, this random ancestor, by chance, uh, is active in the same place where I have spent a lot of time and energy. uh, And... He's part of, you know, for him that Paul preached there and so on, and Paul didn't go over well in Thessaloniki, I might add, (laughs) but he he had to kind of hightail it out of there. But that Paul preached there uh, was important to him and his fellow missionaries, Uh, and it's uh, kind of, I'd gotten very interested in the history of modern Greece and particularly Macedonia as time passed. Uh, and the politics, really, of the past in the Balkan and so that, but, um But this is this weird sidelight. And I don't know if I'll do anything with it or not. I will certainly give these letters, many of which are quite fragile. It really looks like all 17 of them went into the shower with somebody. At some point. <laughs> <laughs> they are not easy to read. Uh, and I have some discussion of why the family saved the letters. -hmm. And I kind of know why I have the letters because provenance is an important thing in evidence. And I basically have the provenance. Uh, And I have, to some degree, stuff about the women in the family and his wife, who was a missionary too. He went to Amherst, she went to Mount Holyoke. Mm -hmm. Moment of great commitment. Anyway, I I don't know. And it's just so cool. I can touch the stuff. It's not a copy, it's not, you know. Mm And I've found a lot more. It's different if you're an ancient historian. It's not (laughs) like that. i got a photograph of this guy. I can go online and find his passport application. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 19th century history, just a different thing.
1: It it sounds like you have no shortage of great projects to work on.
0: (laughs) I'll keep myself busy.
1: Well, Well, Beth, thank you very much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: So well, thank you very much. It was great talking to you.